thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food reel with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. Hi team and welcome back to The Real Food Real. Today on the show we are joined by Associate Professor Ken Sakaris. Ken is a Principal Fellow of the Department of Pathology at Melbourne University and lectures to undergraduates, GPs and a variety of specialist groups across Australia and overseas. Today on the show Ken and I discuss cholesterol, fats and the impact of LCHF on your pathology. Hi Ken and thanks for your time today. Hi Steph, Um, thanks for having me on the show. Glad people are interested in this important area. Absolutely. It's a great topic and I'm looking forward to diving in today. So I wanted to um, start with just a little bit of a background information, um, sorry, some background information. We're going to be discussing cholesterol, fats, triglycerides and lipoproteins. Could you give us a, just a really quick summary of those four words for the benefit of our listeners? Yeah, sure. I mean, the focus on cholesterol has been there because we've known for 100 years that in atheroma, the plaque that obstructs blood vessels, it's full of cholesterol. So the focus has been totally on where does cholesterol come from, where does it get, how does it get into the blood vessels, you know, how does diet impact cholesterol. And um, and in a way, cholesterol has become more important than, than fat, whereas fat is just you know, like oils and animal fat and butter and so on, the, you know, a food source. But cholesterol has become more important than that. And people have tried to link the two, you know, how does fat relate to cholesterol? And rather than sorting things out, it's, it's more or less added to the confusion. Mm. So I think it's important to distinguish between, you know, the words cholesterol and fat. And cholesterol and fat are totally natural things. We wouldn't be alive without them. And the plaque, which is what's in the blood vessel that we're trying to prevent, and the lipoproteins, which are really the way the body handles um, cholesterol and fat, which is the link between nature and disease. And so unless you understand that link, the lipoproteins, then you don't understand how the plaque forms and you don't understand how to interpret blood tests and how to influence them with diet. Yeah, that's a great summary actually. So lipoproteins, then could we um, go through the different types, their significance, but firstly, what are they? Yeah, they're... they're, uh, I'd, I'd like to describe them as the trucks that transport yeah. cholesterol and fat around the bloodstream. The bloodstream is like just like the superhighway of the body, <laughs> and it's got all these transporters. I mean, the, um, it transports oxygen and hemoglobin, of course, but it also transfer, it transports all the nutrients that you know you get from the diet and to the cells. And the way that it transports fat and cholesterol is in these fat trucks or the lipo fat proteins. 
Now, the lipoproteins, the protein part of it is each lipoprotein has a like a, a scaffold of a protein that gives it its characteristic. And um, you know, a lot of people would know that LDL cholesterol, which is one of the lipoproteins, which is particularly full of cholesterol, um, is the protein apolipoprotein B or ApoB, which is its scaffold. But without the scaffold, it has no um, recognition, no structure. So the, the two things go hand in hand. ApoB is the structural protein for LDL cholesterol, which is the main particle that we focus on, but it's not the main particle in terms of um, fat metabolism. Um, you have to go back a step and say, where did the LDL come from? And LDL isn't really made by anything, believe it or not. It's not made by the liver. Um, what the liver makes is another truck called VLDL. Mm. But we don't actually measure that directly. What we measure is what it carries. And the VLDL truck, when it's released by the liver, is full of fat, triglyceride. And so the liver exports triglyceride as a fuel for the body in the VLDL truck. And then as the truck goes around the body, the, the tissues take away some of that fuel. Um, so they'll, it'll go, it should go into the tissues that need energy, like muscle. But the way that I like to um, think of it is that if muscle's not interested in fat, as fuel, then that truck sort of wanders around in the blood for longer than it should. And so patients who rely on carbs as fuel uh, for muscle, the triglyceride hangs around a bit longer. And so their triglyceride levels in the blood are higher. And eventually that triglyceride, because it has to find a home, might find a home in fat tissue. The fat tissue will always be there to take up the unused fat. So, um, yeah, so, so what should be happening is as the liver exports triglyceride, the, the muscle takes it up and uses it as a fuel source. But, but unfortunately, this is not necessary for athletes, but for most people, um, we have so much carb and sugar in our diet, the muscles aren't interested in fat. Mm. 80% up to 80% of the metabolism is based on carbs and glycogen rather than fat. And so the triglyceride tract just hangs around longer than it should and so we end up with high triglycerides. But what should happen, and so take for example in the patient with the low-carb, high-fat diet, what happens is they've got this VLDL uh, cholesterol, uh, cholesterol transporting fat and chylomicrons from meal, that we, we might come back to that if we need to, the transport fat around, and the muscle takes it up. Yeah. And so patients who are on a low-carb, high-fat diet, the triglycerides disappear very quickly from the, as they're formed by the, the liver, and so they end up with a very low level of triglyceride in the blood because muscles are using it up. And, yeah. and I mean, a lot of your listeners will know that, you know, muscle can be transformed from being, you know, maybe 20% fat uh, using organ to 
60 to 70% fat using organ. Yeah. And those, those athletes know their triglyceride levels aren't one or two millimole per litre. They're under one and often around 0.5 millimole per litre, which is as low as it gets mm. because the tissue just soaks it up. Now, when the VLDL has given up all of its triglyceride, that's what LDL is. LDL is really just the empty VLDL fat truck. And what should happen to that truck is it's taken back to the liver and reprocessed. So um, now and one of the paradoxes in uh, or the worrying things about the LCHF diet is that the LDL seems to increase. Mm. And the way I th think of that is that, of course, the VLDL is being exported with all its triglyceride and it disappears quickly and forms LDL. So the more fat metabolizing you are, the more empty VLDL trucks, i.e. LDL, there will be. And so LDL to me usually rises in anyone on the LCHF diet because there's lots of empty triglyceride trucks which are via, which are LDL. So I do you know, I don't now LDL varies a bit from day to day and so on. So people like to believe their LDL's fallen because they'll ignore the one that's slightly high and <laughs> take notice of the one that's slightly low. Mm. But in general terms and in all the papers, people on an LCHF diet have very low triglycerides because they're using the fat and they have slightly higher LDL because that is the empty um, triglyceride truck. Yeah. So I think that's an interesting point because LDLs have ever seen as, quote, unquote, the bad cholesterol. So if yeah. we were to use conventional wisdom and analyse that blood test, the, uh, the, the patient or the person might be quite fearful of that result when yeah. really it's a positive response. That's right. Mm. The, um, and it's probably a, a good point to um, talk about the one particle that we haven't discussed mm. yet is the HDL yes. cholesterol. Or the quote-unquote good, as the we once good, thought. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll preface this by saying that anybody who's looking at total cholesterol on its own, I've said this in my talks, yes. is 30 years out of date. I could not agree more. So it's just horrible when yeah. people focus on that. And one, what's even worse than that is that you know, when people prescribe statins, it's based on the PBS guideline, which is largely based on total cholesterol. Yep. So it's a concept that's 30 years out of date. In the late 80s, when we were thinking about giving statins, we focused on total cholesterol. But since then, we've discovered so much. So now if you, and this is a bit depressing for a lot of people, I say that if you know that LDL is bad and HDL is good, you're only 20 years out of date. <laughs> <laughs> this idea that LDL is bad yeah. is should be buried because yeah. LDL, as I've described, LDL is just an empty VLDL truck. It's per totally natural. And um, so now HDL is considered good. And in general terms, the higher your HDL, the better off you are in terms of cardiovascular risk. And the things that increase HDL are things like exercise and weight loss. Mm. 
that one thing that increases HDL more than anything is LCHF diet. Yeah. I, you know, in the last few years, I've been astounded by how HDL rises on the diet. Mm. So if we had a, you know, HDL should ideally in a man be above one. And, you know, for the last 30 years, I worked in a lipid clinic treating, you know, cholesterol patients for um, many years. And one of the hardest jobs was to have a patient who had a low HDL, say 0.9, under one, to try to get it above one. And, you know, statins, they don't do it. No matter what they say, they do not do it. Um, Weight loss and exercise, if you're really strict, might increase it to 1.1 or 1.2. But if you go onto an LCHF diet, the changes are typically about 0.5 or more. So the 0.9 will become 1.4 or 1.5. My own, and, you know, I I practice what I preach. Um, When I went on to the LCHF diet, my my HDL went from 1 to 1.8. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It's just... um, And what sort of time frame? That was uh, about six months. Yeah. Takes a while to feed trig- well. It varies from person to person. For me, the cholesterol, fell, uh, the triglycerides fell first, but then the HDL took a bit longer than that. And just out of interest, were you eating a conventional food pyramid type diet? No, well, before that, yeah, yeah it was very much so. Yeah, uh, I've got um, you know wife and daughter, and you know they're so paranoid about fat mm. that had very little fat in our diet. We had lots of starches and um, not so much sugar. We did, I've known uh, Robert Lustig for about 10 years. Uh, okay. and, uh, so I know the sugar, so we haven't had, you know, sugar laden soft drinks or things in the house for a decade. But it's a bit but, like that sugar film, how you can eat quote unquote healthy foods but still be eating lots of sugar and certainly well yeah. in excess of 200 grams of carbohydrates a day. Yeah, so in a way, yes, it's true that if you get rid of soft drinks, you've got rid of a hell of a lot of, you know, the source of sugar, mm. but you've still got a lot left. Yeah. In, uh, Low-fat yogurts and the rest, yeah. <laughs> biscuits and uh, even breads and, yeah. So uh, anyway, with the HDL cholesterol, so, so what happens in um, the LCHF diet is that the LDL will increase slightly, as I said, the empty mm. trucks, but the HDL increases enormously. Yeah. And so overall, even if you thought that that LDL rise was bad, the increase in the good cholesterol or the HDL outweighs it. Yeah. And so that the, you know, most of the rise in total cholesterol after LCHF is a rise in the good cholesterol, which is simple enough for anyone to understand. But, you know, the, the real um, question is this issue of um, yeah, are there some forms of LDL which are bad? Yes. And, and I do think that there are. Um, yeah, so let's talk about the difference in the small, dense LDLs and the fluffy particles. Yes. So when, so when you've got an empty VLDL truck, it's given up all its triglycerides ready to go back to the liver, that's a fluffy LDL particle. Okay. Yep. Just big and normal. It's sort of ready to go back and 
be reprocessed to send out another load. Mm. Um, if um, LDL is not taken back by the liver and hangs around in the circulation, then in the truck analogy, it sort of keeps bumping into other trucks and being smashed and mm. in so it's got dints on it, it's got rust on it, it's got dirt on it, it's, uh, you know, it's been crushed by a few, you know, bridges or whatever. And so it's altered. And just probably just like a, a truck stop, if you, if you saw one of these damaged trucks coming back, you'd say, no, just send it to the scrapyard. And so small dense LDL or glycated LDL or oxidised LDL, which are these damaged forms of LDL that form when LDL is not going back to the liver as it should, um, are rubbish, and they're taken up in the body by the junkyard of the body, which is the macrophages and the scavenger receptors. And that's where the damage can, starts to occur because if those um, macrophages and scavengers are in blood vessel walls, remember, that's where the road is, so just off the road is the mm. is the scrapyard, well then the small dense LDL will accumulate in the scrapyard just off the road or in the atheromatous plaque. The plaque, yes. So so, mm. so it's really it's not normal LDL that causes plaque, it's small dense LDL and that's been proven time and time again. So um, so the issue is how do you prevent that small dense LDL forming. One thing that accelerates the formation of small dense LDL is high levels of triglyceride. Which comes from high carbohydrates. That's right. Mm. So, so, and in a way you should go back a step. So you, you're eating all this carb, you've filled up your glycogen stores in the liver and muscle, and the liver still choked with carb and particularly fructose. Yeah. So, so you're taking fructose with glucose. The glucose we know what to do with. We'll just convert it to glycogen. But the fructose, we've got two choices. One is to convert it to glucose and make more glycogen or to convert the fructose into three-carbon sugars and make fat. Yeah. Now, if you're always having fructose with glucose, why would you bother converting the fructose to glucose and making more glycogen? You've still got, you've already got a ton of it. Yeah. So the idea in nature or the liver, whichever way you want to look, look at it, is it's better to store this extra fructose as a long-term energy store, which is a fat. Mm. And so people with high sugar or high sugar and carb diets will have a fatty liver. Mm. The fatty liver it can't just keep storing that fat forever. It has to export it as VLDL, the fat trucks, and they go out into the bloodstream and the muscles want nothing to do with it because they're full of glycogen. And so it just hangs around in the blood um, as triglyceride. But more than that, it starts interacting with other particles and, and the end result of this prolonged um, period of VLDL becoming LDL is that the LDL becomes worn out, small and dense. Yeah. I mean, it's to do with the presence of high triglycerides. And so that's and, the inflammatory process, yeah? Well, the inflammatory process is um, the 
so the idea is when um, those um, battered trucks, the small dense LDL, gets across the blood vessel wall into the macrophages, the macrophages say, whoa, there's all this junk coming in. Um, I don't know what to do with it. It's causing some damage here, oxidization. Um, and the plaque itself starts to release messages um, to the rest of the body to say that um, there's a bit of a battle going on here with all this junk LDL. It's as if there's an infection of rubbish that's, uh, you know, that we have to get rid of. And the cytokines released from the plaque are, thing, are the thing that's sort of thought to elevate the high-sensitivity CRP. CRP is inflammatory marker. Yes. And it's thought to come from this inflammatory activity or this inflammation um, in the plaque. And so, you know, plaque inflammation is a consequence of this accumulation of foam cells and the activation of the immune system in the blood vessel wall. So I don't, I don't personally see, you know, small dense LDL will become oxidized and become more and more hazardous. The body will try to get rid of it and, and therefore it is inflammatory, but there's no real um, generation of inflammation by cholesterol or by it's really just the interaction of the small dense LDL particle with the immune cells in the plaque that creates inflammation. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so just to talk about the CRP and triglyceride just briefly, yeah. what, what does um, distinguish or diagnose inflammation with those two markers? What sort of numbers? So... CRP is a test that we use to diagnose clinical inflammation. So that's infection and autoimmune disease and um, major illnesses where people have got fevers and pain. And, but with atheroma, we don't have fevers and pain. It's mm. more uh, subclinical, below. And so normally CRP is above five, and then we start seeing clinical disease. But people found that even when the CRP was below five, the patients who had a CRP of one died less than the patients with a CRP of four. Yes. And so this idea that a CRP in the normal range, in the lower third you had low risk, in the upper third of the lower range, so three to five, um, you had high risk of death, particularly cardiovascular disease. So, we, so people said, well, how can that be? Oh, it's because atheroma is inflammatory. So people can use CRP as a marker of subclinical inflammation, i.e. possibly from plaque. But because it's such a sensitive indicator of clinical inflammation, if an, if an athlete goes to a gym and has got sore muscles, they're probably going to have raised, raised CRP just because of that. And so generally with this ultra-sensitive CRP, when you're looking at CRPs in the lower range, we don't look at one value and say, aha, you must have subclinical inflammation. We repeat it, hopefully at a time where there's less inflammation, less, you know, inflammation other than plaque, and confirm that it's persistently elevated. Mm. So one test on its own isn't enough, but if it's persistently three or four without any explanation well, then there is this high, higher risk of atherosclerosis. But it is, 
it's a real difficulty in trying to interpret it with, well, with athletes. I mean, if they're in contact sports, it's virtually impossible to interpret it within two or three days of that contact sport because there will be, you know, bruising and muscle damage. Mm. And also I think the challenge becomes the archaic reference ranges that we see on pathology results. Yes. So someone yeah. someone that maybe is speaking to a practitioner that thinks total cholesterol is um, enough to analyse on its own would also think that a CRP of three or four is, is healthy because it's in that reference range. That's, well, that's true. The... Um We've created a bit of a problem ourselves because um, in the past we used to have the CRP assay which told you if it was above five, but there was no precision in the measurements below five. Mm. So that was the normal CRP assay. And then we said, then people started discovering this issue about distinguishing one and three and we called that the high sensitivity CRP assay. Mm. So the clinicians sort of think, oh, there's a normal CRP assay which is if it's above five, we're interested. If it's below five, it's useless. Um, and then the high sensitivity CRP assay where the focus is on less than five, not above five. Um, in reality, today, the assays are so good, they're all high sensitivity CRP assays. Well, you do get the breakdown now. You don't just see do. less than five, yeah. If the lab gives you a result of two or three or four, it's a high sensitivity assay. Mm. But the clinician doesn't realise that. He thinks that he just ordered a normal CRP and maybe the two, three and four have, are meaningless. Mm. They have meaning now. Um, yes. So then to summarise, it's obviously CRP less than one is ideal. Yeah, one or, one or two one is or two. ideal. Yeah. Three is about intermediate and four, four or five is sort of something that's a warning. Mm. And what about triglycerides? It's less than one we know for... Obviously, the influence of LCHF and that low um, yeah. inflammatory connection. But what are your thoughts above one? Um, you know, maybe ten years ago, we used to say anything above below five was okay. <laughs> and then we reduced it to three, and then two. And about ten years ago, people started class. Um, creating criteria for, to, for diagnosing pre-diabetes or metabolic syndrome. Mm. And they use cutoffs for triglyceride of around 1.7 or 1.5. If you're above 1.7 or 1.5, that's evidence that you're pre-diabetic. But um, I, I tell you, I mean, it correlates with that issue of small dense LDL. If your triglycerides are above 1.5 or 1.7, I can virtually guarantee you must have small dense LDL. That's why it's so dangerous to have metabolic syndrome yes. and cardiovascular disease. So how low do you need to be to get rid of any chance of small dense LDL? And I agree with you, it needs to be under 1. Mm. So 1 to 1.5 or so is a borderline zone. Um, under 1 is when we see for most patients the small dense LDL disappears to insignificant levels. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, every most athletes are looking for, rather than just what's good, yeah. it's ideal. Optimal. Mm. And to me, um, you know, 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.5 means you can't get much better than that. Yeah. Amazing. 
So I wanted to dive in more to total cholesterol. I absolutely love your statement that anyone that looks at total cholesterol on its own is 30 years out of date. So that's obviously been a huge problem that we've seen in the developed world with the um, prescription of statin drugs and the significant side effects that they do create. Have you got any other comments to make on the problems with using total cholesterol as an indicator of health or disease risk? Yes. Um, now, I was on a working party for the College of Pathologists um, about 10 years ago, and we went through what should labs be reporting next to all of these numbers, cholesterol, triglyceride. Uh, we said back then triglycerides should be 1.5. You know, HDL for men should be above 1. For women should be above 1.3. Um, and for total cholesterol, what we said was that not only shouldn't there be a number next to it, because it's useless as an indicator on its own, we shouldn't even be reporting total cholesterol on the report. Wow. Now, um, I don't know of any laboratory that's been brave enough to do that because there would be such an outcry, not only from doctors but also from patients, that where is my cholesterol level? Yeah. So all we've tried to do in our reports is to de-emphasise the cholesterol by having um, comments and calculations below that which are more important. The ratios. The ratios, that's mm. right. So, So... And, and even those ratios are no longer focused on LDL and HDL as individual good and bad, mm. but the relationship between them. And the old ratio of LDL over HDL, which is good divided by bad, we shouldn't be using anymore. That's and what we should be using is um, total cholesterol HDL ratio mm. or, or triglyceride HDL ratio. Mm. Now... It's sort of paradoxical that we say, well, total cholesterol is useless, but the ratio of total cholesterol to HDL is useful, mm. probably the most useful number of all of them. Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you about the significance of that ratio because that obviously helps us calculate the, the LDL particle subfraction. So could you yeah. explain that, please? Yeah, so as I said before, the triglycerides over 1.5 predict whether you've got small dense LDL. But there's something that predicts it even better, mm. which is the total cholesterol over HDL ratio. Mm. To understand that, you have to understand firstly that there's an inverse relationship between triglyceride and HDL. We mentioned that before. When you go onto LCHF, your triglycerides fall yeah. and your HDL rises. Or conversely, when you're becoming diabetic, the triglycerides rise and the HDL falls. So what I've quoted as saying, I believe it more and more each time I say it, is yeah. a low HDL is a better marker of high triglycerides than triglycerides. Triglycerides, even in, when you're on an LCHF diet, vary by a fair bit from day to day. A 0.5 could easily be 0.8 the next day. Um, and certainly a patient with a, a triglyceride of 2 could be 3 the next day. Yeah. But HDL is much more stable. So if you've got a HDL of 0 0.9, tomorrow it's going to be pretty close to 0 0.9. Yeah. And so the HDL is more like a, a, a better, more stable indicator of how well you're hand, handling triglyceride. So anything that's got the reciprocal, like divided by HDL, 
is a better indicator of triglyceride than triglyceride. So, so then why doesn't one divided by HDL, the reciprocal of HDL, become the best indicator? One divided by HDL tells you how much of your LDL is in the small dense form. So rather than how much the triglyceride, how low is the HDL, how much of your of your LDL is in the small dense form. But, um, but it doesn't help just to know how much of your LDL is in the small dense form. You also have to have an idea of how much LDL do you have. And so um, LDL divided by HDL, the top tells you how much LDL you have. The bottom tells you how much of the LDL is in small dense form. And so does, even better, the total cholesterol divided by HDL. Why is that? Because total cholesterol includes not only LDL, but a bit of triglyceride, the VLDL cholesterol. So total cholesterol divided by HDL works better than LDL divided by HDL because it includes a little bit of the VLDL cholesterol. Mm. So, so, you know, total cholesterol, HDL, we've found in our correlations that total cholesterol divided by HDL is a bit better than triglyceride divided by HDL. Okay. But that's probably largely because triglycerides vary so much from day to day. Right. Whereas yeah. total cholesterol doesn't vary as much. Mm, that makes sense. So what I've seen in recent years is that both ratios have been used um, almost together as the new uh, analysis so that we are obviously no longer looking at TC or total cholesterol. So yeah. do you do both ratios and look at the numbers I look at just the bottom line in our report yeah. is total cholesterol divided by HDL, and I tell my clinicians and patients that is the bottom line. That's the only number you should be looking at in the whole profile. Forget all about total cholesterol, triglyceride, just look at that last number because as a single number, it's the best thing. One thing we should mention is that um, the National Heart Foundation and a lot of the cardiac foundations around the world they don't like all of these theories of prescribing statins, so they want this greater focus on total cholesterol. But they have to acknowledge how important HDL is. So they've created a new calculation, which is instead of total cholesterol divided by HDL, it's total cholesterol minus HDL, which in my um, calculations, it's not as good as triglycerides divided by HDL or total cholesterol, but it's at least it's a lot better than total cholesterol on its own. That's so, right. you know, they're moving, they've more or less moved to being 10 years out of date, which is better than when they were 20 and 30 years out of date. Uh, look, I hope in our generation we see the, the up-to-date, but I won't hold my breath. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I look at, the most important measurements for me um, are total cholesterol HDL ratio. Yeah. Now, there are some patients, which I mentioned during some of my um, YouTube lectures, who have an extraordinary rise in LDL. So rather than their LDL going from you know 3 to 3.3 or something like that, just mild elevations, their, cholesterol, their LDL cholesterol goes from 3 to 6 or 7. And all their total cholesterol goes from, you know, five or so to nine or ten. Or yeah, I've seen a lot of that. Mm. Now, clearly what's happening to them is that their 
um, using those VLDL trucks to transport, the triglycerides are really low. So they've got lots of empty trucks, which for some reason are not going back to the liver. Sometimes that's because they've got thyroid disease and thyroid disease affects the way the fluffy trucks can go back to the liver. Mm. Um, sometimes it's because they've got a strange form of truck, which is called uh, lipoprotein. It's a form of LDL, but it's called lipoprotein lowercase a, little a. Mm. And, uh, and that's like a truck that's got a, you know, sort of this um, big label on it saying, um, I'm not meant to go back to the liver. <laughs> and oh. so it hangs around in the blood and and if we don't know its purpose to be honest and uh, we don't really know whether you know patients with on lchf who've got high levels of lp delay accumulating in the blood um you know are at risk but our you know is we we're sort of really precautious about that so i do suggest to any patient who gets this exaggerated ldl um to look at their lp delay level and think about whether they've got a, a family history due to it because that suggests that this accumulation of LP little a may be important. Mm. It's very rare, this thing. We're talking about less than 1% of the population. Um, and then there's um, other things that we, we're still learning about. There's um, Some of your listeners will know about this new new uh, label that we can put on the, the door for the fluffy tracks, on the, which is called the uh, PSK9, PSK. CK9 receptor. So we're starting to learn a little bit more about these things. Yeah. But the bottom line is that we don't know. We've never had the, a, a study of patients on LCHF who have these exaggerated rises and whether it's harmful. Mm. So so we um, we need another marker. And we are, there is some hope that we're going to get another marker to um, work out whether these things are truly dangerous or not. Yeah, which I think is really important because obviously science is still um, is significantly evolving, which is, you know, another example of why it's absurd to still be looking at total cholesterol as the measure on its own. I think yeah. that these ratios that we've been discussing and certainly what science is uncovering now is certainly where we need to be directing our focus. And I think educating the our clients or educating the the people because peeps you know most people are still worrying about total cholesterol and it either comes from their gp or conventional wisdom when you know that's the last thing they need to be worrying about it is but you know i feel guilty sometimes because i'm sure some of your listeners may have been sort of struggling to keep up with all the yeah. chemistry that i'm talking about and and that's what happens when i speak to dietitians or doctors step by step each individual step they can follow, like your VLDL is a triglyceride, you know, each step they can follow. But then when they have to sort of picture it all together, when even I don't have the complete story, mm. they think, oh, look, I don't really understand how I got to Z. There were so many complicated steps in between. I don't understand. So even though I, I'm going to revert back to the old way of thinking. Mm. And it's it's really you should have the confidence that if you understand the mechanisms, then the conclusion should be different, not because there is missing pieces of information like the 1% of people who get the exaggerated response to LCHF 
well, therefore we don't understand anything. We're going to go back to square one and look at total cholesterol. That doesn't make sense. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> should... I agree with you. I think it's a it's a very complex topic, which is some of the challenge that we face. And just saying to someone after 50 years of worrying about their total cholesterol that, oh, no, all you need to do is calculate your total cholesterol to HDL ratio and if you're under 5 or under 3, you're fine. Like they can't just overnight change that whole thinking and I, I feel like that's a big part of the struggle and I'm sure you experience that day to day. Yeah. Well, that's what I loved about the sugar film, that, it, you know, Damon deliberately appealed to the new generation mm. because, you know, in a way those people who are 60 or 70 years old, they can't really deny or begin to understand how wrong they've been. Mm. It's almost hard to get that multi-generational reversal. But if... Um, the groundswell of social media and, you know, new wave thinking um, leads to the new generation having better health, that's the best we can hope for. Yeah. So can we just go back to the total cholesterol to HDL ratio because I'm sure everyone's getting out their pathology results and their calculators (laughs) as we speak. So it's obviously total cholesterol divided by HDL. Yes. And what are we looking for? Well, it should be under 4.5. 4.5. So now 4.5 is a bit like the triglyceride of 1.5. It's like you need to be under 4.5. And ideally, if you're under 3.5, that's as good as it gets. Mm -hmm. So, um, so, you know, whether it's a minimal goal or an optimal goal, the minimal goal is get it under 4.5. If you're over uh, 4.5, then it's pretty clear you're in danger. Mm -hmm. If you're under 3.5, well, whatever you're doing, stick to it. <laughs> and uh, and if you're between three and a half and four and a half, well, then, you know, what else can you do? There's no panic, but, you know, what else can you do to try to improve it? And as we were implying before, it's all to do with HDL and diet certainly uh, is the major factor, but, hate, but, you know, exercise is also beneficial. Yeah, which is amazing. Here we have a solution that involves what we put in our mouth and how we move our body and there is zero need for pharmaceutical intervention. And Mm. again, that's a big problem that we see in the developed world and particularly with the generations that you were mentioning before is um, statins are like lollies for a lot of them. Yeah. One, One thing that, you know, in terms of how difficult it is to change thinking or change the world, the food industry, I remember um, Donald O'Neill and his uh, Serial Killers mm. uh, movie. Um, there was a funny point in the movie where he was speaking to all these world experts and he was speaking to one of his neighbours. We thought, oh, how does this come into it? You know, and the neighbour said to him, oh, Donald, I can, I can just imagine how well this will be received. You're saying to people, um, don't, you know, let them eat steak, right, <laughs> <laughs> like bread and cake and so on let everyone eat steak instead. And it's like that's not really possible to have the world switch over from a carb, largely carb diet, which is the cheapest way of making food, to a protein diet. Um, And I do panic that if suddenly, you know, the world got the picture, the price of meat and dairy and egg (laughs) would skyrocket Mm. and and my wallet would be hurt as much Mm. (laughs) as So there's a lot to be done before the world can switch across to what 
the, you know, the, what it's developed over the last 30 years, it's not going to be an overnight solution. No, absolutely not. But as, as you said, it certainly starts with the using the influences that we have in 2016, like I think social media and films like that sugar film and serial killers because it then we can reach those people that have been brainwashed into believing the opposite. Yeah, and it's important for people to be, you know, to put themselves up as examples. And so, you know, sports people and um, dietitians and pathologists, mm. you know, they they have to... Um, I mean, why am I on this podcast? Most people have never spoken to a pathologist. Yeah. Um, but I spoke to somebody and said, you know, you're speaking to the GPs and everything. Unless we get the message out to everyone, um, how will the how will things change? So each of us needs to, you know, promote what we believe in. Mm. Um, and by and you know it's sort of like a, a social movement rather than a, a you know an academic paradigm. <laughs> yeah, which is which is fantastic, and I think we've seen that quite significantly in the last three or four or five years, um, and I believe it's only going to continue, which I'm sure is making your life easier as well as people become more familiar with these concepts and appreciate the differences in cholesterol and the lipoproteins. Yes. So I wanted to finish just with a summary about the conventional food pyramid and the influence on our pathology. I know we've spoken about how high carbohydrate and sugars do affect HDLs and triglycerides, but I just wanted you to summarize that because I think it's really important that we really do clarify how the food pyramid has, I guess, contributed to the problem that we see today. Yeah. So, you know, essentially this avoidance of fat, of saturated fat, which was seen as the major cause of cholesterol rises, we've said high-fat diets increase cholesterol, but not in a harmful way. But the whole pyramid was based on saturated fats being harmful and anything that's not saturated fat, i.e. the other major energy source, which is carbs, being beneficial and so we've pushed people to say that fat is harmful replace it with anything else you can find and mm. um, maybe not so much sugar but certainly carbs and bread and cereals and so but the more we've done that the more we've um, really prevented our bodies from being able to know what to do with fat the triglycerides accumulate, the small dense LDL forms and so on. So, you know, now we're sort of backpedalling as fast as we can to say, oh, just a minute, maybe saturated fats weren't so harmful and maybe all this sugar and carb that we've been pouring into the population is harmful. Mm. So 50 years now, I don't know if the pyramid needs to be, in a way, if you want to reverse the damage, that that diet has done, the reverse the obesity and so on, you have to spin that pyramid on its head and stop the carbs and switch to fat. But um, there's also a difference in the diet which required to reverse the damage, reverse diabetes, get rid of the fat, get rid of obesity, overweight, and the diet which is a balanced diet, 
And so a balanced diet is not completely devoid of carbohydrate. You know, nature, you know, we were built to be able to eat carbs, but not at the expense of everything else. Of course. And whole food carbohydrates, of course. That's right. More <laughs> natural, yeah, unrefined carbs. We've mm. sort of been so focused on carbs, we've, we've almost said that the natural carbs aren't good, as good as the highly refined carbs, which is just bizarre. Well, I think that's an important point, just briefly. I mean, anyone that listens to the show knows that when we're talking about carbohydrates, that there are those two distinct groups. Obviously, refined carbohydrates are what we're trying to eliminate, if not significantly reduce, and then and whole food carbohydrates are a very different story altogether. Yes. The, um, I'm, I'm Greek, so um, I often feel like if I, a bit like the big fat Greek wedding, if I ever told my um, relatives that I'm not eating baklava anymore. Mm. <laughs> You'd be banned from the family. <laughs> But also, I'm sure in the time, in the six months, or I don't even know how long it's been since you've been doing LCHF, but um, you clearly, clearly have much improved carbohydrate tolerance than, than you did when you were on the food pyramid. That's right, and 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 I also remember when I was a boy, we didn't have dessert every dinner time. Baklava or you know any sweet was for Easter and Christmas, and maybe a birthday if you're lucky, mm. you know, rather than what it's become today for everyone, the sugary and all those luxuries are daily foods. And, mm. um, you know, so, you know, they should be like honey in the hunter-gatherer tri- society. It wasn't a staple. It was a treat. Yeah, absolutely. It's been amazing to chat with you. I hope our listeners have found that as interesting as I have. I'm really excited to um, share this with our audience. And, uh, again, I really appreciate your time today, Ken. Oh, it's been a pleasure, Steph. Thanks. Keep doing what you're doing because I'd love you to go and educate every single GP in the developed world. <laughs> yes. Oh, Keep you busy. <laughs> okay. Thank you. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.